Well, if you have a Bible with you, turn with me to Mark chapter 6 this morning. The book of Mark, the second book of the New Testament. We've been studying Mark since the beginning of the fall. We're now in Mark chapter 6, working our way through it. And we'll actually continue to work our way through it through the weeks around Christmas. Oftentimes around Christmas time, we break from whatever study we're in and we talk about Jesus' birth or his incarnation, his nature, his being. Uh, we'll go to maybe one of those stories early in Matthew or early in Luke that records his birth for us. But this year, we're going to stay right where we are and we're going to see Jesus' life. One reason for that is that, uh, well, it's okay to do that. We just want to make sure everyone knows that. A second reason to do that is because we have a lot of unbelievers and guests who are with us on holidays, and we thought it'd be good to do exactly what we always do, and it'd be good for them to see not just a baby Jesus or a resurrected Jesus when they come at Christmas or Easter, but to see the life of Jesus, his miracles, his power, his teaching, to see the reactions to that Jesus. And so we'll continue through Mark in upcoming weeks. Today, we'll see that Jesus is a good shepherd. He's a good shepherd. Let me read from Mark 6, starting in verse 30 to verse 44. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. That's God's word for us today. Jesus is a good shepherd. The place in Scripture where Jesus himself tells us about that, tells us the most about that, is it's actually John chapter 10. You can read that later on your own if you haven't before. There he gives a sermon on how he is a metaphorical or spiritual shepherd to God's people. Here in Mark 6, there isn't much explicit reference to Jesus being that kind of shepherd, but the shepherd imagery, some shepherd language, even cloaked and hidden a bit, it's scattered throughout. 
It's scattered throughout, as we'll see. So I want to look at this passage today two different ways. The first being chronologically, where we just understand the story itself. We just move through it in its natural order to see its turns, to see what's happening here. But then secondly, I want to look at it more systematically or categorically to analyze it according to a few different biblical themes. So first, a story with many turns. It's a story with many turns, at least seven different turns. I could have actually listed more, but I had mercy on your note-taking. There's at least seven different turns to the story. Most stories have five, right? There's a climax in the middle and two things on the side. And here it's a little more layered than that. The first turn is a return, a return. Verse 30. Verse 30, the, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And of course, verse 30 is picking up on a story that was left on hold back in verse 13. You might remember that from last week. Back in verses 7 to 13, Jesus sent out the 12 apostles. He sent them out two by two with his authority to preach, to heal, and to cast out demons. He told them to take nothing with them, just a staff. No money, no bag, no sandwiches, no toothbrushes, no favorite pillows. They're going to go light. They're like Israel in the desert many years before, almost millennia, plural, before. They'd have to depend entirely upon God for their provision and protection. There were 12 of them. That's important. There weren't 11. There weren't 13. Jesus didn't pick 12 because it's easily divisible. You can have six groups of two or three groups of four or four groups of three. That's not why he picked 12. Notice, most often in Mark, they're not called apostles, but they're just called the 12. Mark seems to emphasize the fact that there are 12 of them. And what this is doing is hinting at the fact that God here is beginning again. There were 12 tribes in the Old Testament. There are 12 apostles in the New. Unless you think that's just coincidence, you should know that Revelation 21 talks about the new heaven and new earth that will come at the end of the age. And it pictures gates with the names of the 12 tribes on them. And it pictures walls with 12 foundations with the names of the 12 apostles on them. They go together. There were 12 staffs back in Numbers 17, one from each tribe. 12 staffs, 12 tribes. Here, there are 12 staffs in the hands of 12 apostles in Mark 6. The scant resources that they're sent out with are really the no, the, 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 the no resources or absence of resources that they are sent out with also emphasizes the fact that they were hurried prophets. They were rough prophets. They were singularly focused prophets like John the Baptist. Remember, his diet and his dress matched his message. He wore camel's hair and he ate locusts. He's a survivalist. He's rough and he has a rough message that Israel needs to hear. The 12, too, they proclaimed that people should repent. And they must have looked the part, especially one week in, week and a half in, two weeks in. 
We don't know, actually, for how long they were out on this mission. We also don't know how successful they were with it. We know from Jesus, when he sent them out, that they would receive a mixed reception. Some would hear and receive and even support their ministry, and and others would not listen, would not receive, and would remain under God's judgment. Nevertheless, verse 30 just summarizes their return. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. We're not told what Jesus said in response here in Mark. But Jesus does respond to their return like a good shepherd, like a spiritual shepherd. He leads them to rest. That's the second turn, a rest. You see in verse 31, he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. This is one of several places in Mark, and of course the other gospel accounts too, where Jesus demonstrates that need to get away, to get solace, to pray, to find rest. Yes, even Jesus needed rest. How much more these 12 who've just returned from a mission, a mission without money, without supplies, staying in people's homes, no doubt some weird people's homes, no doubt with some loud kids that weren't their own. They were rejected by many of them, no doubt. They had to be weary. They needed rest, and Jesus knew it. So already in Mark, in just the second verse in to our passage this week, we see an important implication and application even for us, not just for missionaries, not just for apostles, but for everyone. It's that Jesus wants us to rest as well. Jesus believes in rest. Jesus wants you to come away every now and then. Ease or rest can be an idol for some. We know that. Proverbs talks about laziness. But for most of us in this room, it's work, busyness, and success that is the idol, not rest. Each one of us needs to have a robust theology of rest, what it is, what it's for, why we need it, why God's given it, and that we should pursue it to his glory and for our good. We need a plan for actually getting some rest. It can't be some theoretical ideal where we believe in rest for the weaker folks, not for us, you know, for people who need more sleep than I do. No, we all need rest as a discipline even. Jesus in the 12, it says in verse 32, went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. That's repetitive. It all signals rest, getting away. And yet, even sometimes our best laid plans for getting rest are interrupted. And that's actually what happens to Jesus and the apostles. Their plans to retreat, get some reprieve, find some rest, are interrupted by the crowd once again. The third turn in the story, a crowd. You thought I was going to do all ours, didn't you? Well, I'm going to do a bunch of C's, and I'm going to change it at the very end, so watch out. A crowd. Verse 33. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. 
Jesus and the twelve probably sailed or rowed north along the shore. And so those who recognized them in the boat started to follow, started to head where they thought they would go. And no doubt as they're going, they're talking about this. They're getting these people to come along and that guy to come along. And the crowd is no doubt growing. The anticipation's growing. And they actually arrive where they are to land before Jesus and the twelve actually get there. We know from what we already read of the passage that it ends up being a very large group. 5,000 men to say nothing of the women and children. This, this wasn't a Kiwanis club of men. Women and children, no doubt, were, were part of this group. Can you imagine 5,000 men, their women and children? Maybe 15,000, 20,000, all there, assembling themselves in a chaotic, hurried fashion to get to see Jesus and hear Jesus. They chase Jesus down. They no doubt run on foot. They get there ahead of him. And all that with no ad campaign saying Jesus is coming to town. No flyers, no social media, no website, Jesus.com. Jesus is no master of PR. In fact, he was a failure at PR based on the world standards. You remember, he actually told people to not speak about him, to not tell what just happened to them, not tell who he is. At least he put that on wraps for a little while. Eventually that'll get loose. And here in Mark 6, he's actually trying to get away from the crowd, not rouse them up. He's not trying to build anticipation by slipping away just enough for them to get excited and ah, showing back up. No. The great crowd. In verse 34, and when he saw the great crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Rather than grumble about his interrupted retreat, rather than even pray for help to finally get some rest already, Jesus had compassion on them. These are obviously desperate people. They were like sheep without a shepherd. Most of us didn't grow up around sheep. I'm from Detroit. There are no sheep in Detroit. Maybe now there are. I don't know. But there weren't when I was there. So whatever I've known about sheep over the years, I've learned secondhand because it's all over the Bible and you've got to figure out what sheep are like and why this imagery is so often used. And so if you've done that at all, if you've read a book like A Shepherd Looks at the 23rd Psalm, you know that sheep without a shepherd, they wander. They go astray. They will get into danger. They will fall over and they can't roll back over. They are sitting ducks for any animal with bigger teeth than theirs. They won't find food on their own. Or if they happen to, they'll eat themselves to death. Well, this is Israel. Spiritually speaking, in Jesus' day, this is Israel. Sheep without a shepherd. This is God's people. And what a damning statement this was for the spiritual leaders in Israel of this time. It's not like there was a shortage of priests in this day. There was a, an overflow of religious leaders. There were Pharisees and Sadducees. There were synagogue rulers and scribes. There were a lot of priests. And yet Jesus makes the sweeping statement that the people are like sheep without a shepherd. 
And so he began to teach them many things. Notice that connection. They were like sheep without a shepherd, so he taught them. He had compassion on their wandering ways, on their aimlessness. And he taught them. He taught them. It doesn't say they were like sheep without a shepherd, so he had them line up one by one and gave them all a big hug. It doesn't say they were like sheep without a shepherd, so he put them into affirmation circles of no more than eight. It doesn't say he put them in self-help groups to vent or talk about how bad their upbringing was. He taught them. Jesus' compassion is expressed in teaching. Their shepherdlessness, their aimlessness, their wandering, their need is met with teaching. Doesn't that say something even today? What we need as his people? What do we need? We need his shepherding instruction. We need his compassion through teaching and preaching. This says something about what God uses for his people's good, what he's chosen to use. Yes, compassion, yes, sympathy, yes, brotherly affection, yes, prayer, and a lot of other things. But at the center of it, a lot of it for the church is his teaching. But back to the story. Jesus' teaching is interrupted by the disciples who have a concern. The fourth turn, a concern. A concern. Verse 35. When it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. How should we read this? Is this compassionate? Are the disciples instead being brazen? Is this sensible thinking? Or is it insubordinate? Well, if we're only thinking in practical terms, it's the former of those. It looks like consideration for the people. It looks like compassion on the people. It looks like the obvious and sensible solution to a problem. Problem being, there are loads of people. You're off the beaten path without food. They need to eat. Jesus is going very long. Let's be reasonable here. They say, send them away before it gets too late. In other words, stop teaching now. we got to eat. In fact, send them away where they can buy something for themselves. They're thinking in practical terms, and it is practical. We would probably think of a situation in much the same way. But we, as Bible readers, shouldn't just think in practical terms and nor should they have thought in just practical terms. Oh no, not with this Jesus. Not with this Jesus who bosses around the wind and bosses around the waves and bosses around a thousand demons with a word. This is not a problem for this Jesus who can forgive sins like only God can. A lack of food is no problem for him who has complete control over disease and demons and death and disaster. Heck, a lack of food was no problem for the disciples just a couple scenes ago. Remember that? By God's grace, 
their lack of food when they were sent out on this mission without food was no problem. Apparently, they returned fed. We don't know how long they were gone, but, but they didn't come back and say, we're starving, we're almost dying. We didn't make it. We just barely made it. Apparently, they made it. God provided. But all that, who Jesus is, what he's done, how he's provided, has slipped their remembrance, apparently. Jesus responds, fifth, with a challenge. Another turn, a challenge. Verse 37, he answered them, you give them something to eat. It's hard to, to know how to take this. Is Jesus expecting them to do a miracle? Probably not. Is he including them in the solution that's to come? Maybe. After all, they are extensions of his authority and his ministry, as we saw earlier. And he will include them in the distribution of the food and the cleanup that happens later. Or is he proving to them that apostleship is one thing, but being Messiah is something totally different? Is he proving to them that they can't feed these people? They can't do anything. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe only he can. We can maybe, maybe understand better how they responded and why they responded like they did, even though it's still wrong-headed. They say in verse 37, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? 200 denarii was 200 days' wages for a labor worker. That might be ten dollars to $15,000 in today's money and economy. In fact, that's about as cheaply as you could possibly feed 5,000 men plus women and kids. And obviously that's impossible for fishermen, former fishermen, traveling prophets, those who just a little bit ago left without any money, probably came back with nothing in their pockets. But Jesus wants to prove to them and to us that there isn't enough on hand. They don't have the money. They, they couldn't possibly buy their way out of the situation. He says in verse 38, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. Clearly not enough, no matter how you slice it. And then sixth, a command. There's a challenge, but then a command. Verse 39, he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. Isn't it interesting here that Mark slows the narrative down? The exchanges have all been very quick up until this point. And now it's as if Jesus slows things down. Let's have them all sit down into groups. And can you imagine being one of the disciples at this point? Maybe they're still holding the five loaves and the, the two fish. As Jesus says, let's have everyone sit down into groups. They're looking at each other thinking, and then what? We got five loaves and two fish. Maybe they're even used by Jesus to usher people into these groups. You know, they're going around saying, I, I know, I know. I don't know what he's going to do. I don't know. I know five loaves, two fish, that's it. But then the command gets, well, vertical. 
The crowd is rustling about in their various groups. The disciples are probably confused, if not embarrassed. And then Jesus looks upward. He blesses the food. He blessed and broke the loaves and then gave them to the disciples to set before the people. Verse 41. He divided the two fish among them all to command. And really, this last turn of the story may have already happened. It's hard to say. The last turn is a miracle. That's, of course, where it's going. We know that, right? This is the feeding of the 5,000. It's a miracle. Or maybe it's here in verse 42. They all ate and were satisfied. And here's the extent of the miracle. They took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. It's a mighty and glorious miracle. And yet, did you notice that it is told very simply and plainly? It's tough to even pinpoint where the miracle actually happened. The bread just kept coming, kept multiplying. The fish just kept dividing, apparently. It's not just Mark's description or his lack of description that's mysterious. I think our own imagination has trouble with this miracle. At least mine does. Other miracles are more easily imagined in my mind's eye. So a woman has a bleeding issue. And Jesus heals her. And I can imagine that Jesus has the power and and the the knowledge to know where this thing is leaking and how to cauterize it without ever touching anything and without anyone seeing anything. I can just imagine that in my mind's eye. Maybe because I've seen movies of inside people's bodies. I can imagine the, the guy who can't walk and he comes to Jesus and Jesus, yes, has the power, the knowledge to know what's broken, what's bent, what needs fixing. And Jesus can just do that without touching, even if no one can see it take place. But multiplying bread and fish is just strange in my head. Was one fish taken from the basket and then another one just appeared? Was one chunk of bread removed from a loaf and then immediately it grew back to its original size? I don't know. And that's part of the beautiful wonder and the mystery of it all. It's probably part of why Mark gives us no details. They all ate and were satisfied. It's a miracle. I debated what to call that section, what to call the punchline of this whole thing. I just couldn't get past the fact that we have to know this is a miracle. This isn't anything but. It is Jesus feeding miraculously. I mean, what are the options here? I mean, either either the disciples made this all up and they made these stories all up. In most cases, they painted themselves in such horrible colors as they made these stories all up. But we wouldn't make up stories like that. We would make ourselves as, you know, VPs of the story. We'd put ourselves in secondary light next to Jesus. But, but no, not here in Mark. They're often putting foot in mouth and tripping over themselves and not getting it. Well, what's another option? The disciples thought it was true, but Jesus is just a, a shyster, a magician. He just does card tricks. And here we are 2,000 years later singing about and praising a card trick magician who somehow duped 5,000 or 10,000 or 15,000 people into thinking they had eaten when they hadn't. Or he's God. 
And he can do the miraculous without any, without any effort. Now, before we move on to this next section, let's ask ourselves this. What's this story about? Why is it here in our Bibles? What is it really saying? I know partly it's here in our Bibles because it happened. It's historically true. All four gospel accounts put it in their gospel accounts. It's the only story like that. Part of the reason it's here is because it's true, but that's, that's not it. That's not enough because some things happened that aren't in here. John tells us that if all the things that could be written about Jesus were written, it'd be in all the books of all the world, basically. What is God saying to us here in this passage through his living word? What is he saying today? What does he want us to see and to know and to believe? Well, maybe this story is about how Jesus cares for the poor. He feeds the hungry, and we should too. That's certainly something the Bible teaches. Is it in this passage? Maybe this story is about how Jesus will provide for your needs, his followers' needs, even when it looks desolate and impossible. As long as we chase after him and stay long with him, he will not only meet our needs, but will have extra and abundance. Maybe this story is about how God can do so much with so little. All he needs is your five loaves and your two fish, whatever that is. Your little talents. Go ahead, call them little and give them to him and know that little is much when God is in it. Maybe this story encourages sharing. That was one old interpretation that explained away or tried to explain away the miracle of the story. William Barclay, an old commentator, he he said this is a miracle of sharing. What happened was Jesus got out the five loaves and the the two fish and and all the people, the 5,000 plus, were convicted. They knew they had their own stash right back here behind them. They were keeping it for themselves. But when Jesus was willing to give up the five loaves and the two fish, they all felt bad. They got it out and they all shared. Amazingly then, there were 12 baskets full of leftovers after everyone was satisfied. That would be a miracle if they shared and still had 12 baskets left over. Of course, that's not the right interpretation of this. Some of those are better than others that I just mentioned, but neither of them is the primary point of this passage. It's not the most important lesson to see Jesus just as compassionate, just as providing us needing to feed the poor. The most important thing this passage teaches us, like almost all in Mark, is who this is, what he's come to do, and what that means for the world. That's what the 12 need most. That's what they need to learn. Who this is, why he came, and what it means. And that's what we still need today to know better and more and more deeply who Jesus is and what he came to do and what difference that makes for all of life and even all of eternity. And I know you might be tempted to think, No, Ryan, I do know that. I know Jesus. I know why he came. I know what he came to do. I know what he will come to do again. Especially in a book like Mark, you might be thinking, every passage is about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. I know. I get it. I get it. I get it. But can't you just give us something practical about marriage or ten lessons for parenting or 
how to navigate politics in the 21st century American context, or some inspirational, uplifting stories, perhaps. Can't you hold a puppy? Use puppies on the PowerPoint, for, for Pete's sake. Well, but here's how I know that what I need most and what you need most is to get more of Jesus and to get him right and to get him better and to get him more deeply. You see, we'll talk about this next Wednesday at our Lord's Supper service. This coming Wednesday, 6.30 p.m. is our Lord's Supper. And, and for the message, we'll continue right in and Mark, right along in Mark, and we'll look at the next story where Jesus walks on the water. It's another boat scene. And once again, the disciples, look down on your Bibles, verse 50, they are terrified when they see Jesus walking in the water. And then even after Jesus says, don't be afraid, it's me. Verse 51, they were utterly astounded. Why? Well, Mark tells us the next verse. Verse 52, look at it. For they did not understand about the loaves. They didn't understand about the 5,000, their feeding, the loaves. So how do I know we need more of Jesus to gaze at him in his beauty and glory and to keep gazing and gazing and gazing no, no matter how long we've been a Christian or how familiar these stories are? Because we're afraid still. We are dominated by human thinking all the time. We're desperate pragmatists and materialists left and right. We fret. We don't trust him. It's because we really don't understand about the loaves. Or we've forgotten about the loaves. So let's take some time now to dig a little bit more deeply into these loaves. The feeding of the 5,000, what led up to it. There's much more here. I said this is a story with many turns. It's also a story with massive biblical themes. We'll take four of them. Let me pause first, though, to explain what I mean by massive biblical themes. I mean that the Bible is a story, and there are these recurring names and themes and places and ideas and concepts and symbols, and they usually have some sort of development to them. You see, stuff is promised or foreshadowed in the Old Testament, and then often it's referred to again and even fulfilled in the New Testament. There's stuff in Mark 6 that ties into a whole grand narrative, a whole Bible storyline. I've worded it like this before. God's word is like an Afghan blanket. There's a hole to it. And yet, sometimes one string gets loose, and if you pull on it, you can see it move all through the whole thing. And there are these themes in the Bible that are like that. You can pull on them, and you go, oh, back there, through there, on that. And we're going to see four of them in Mark 6 today. The first biblical theme is a new exodus. A new exodus. Buckle up. We'll be all over the Bible. You don't have to turn with me, but I'll, I'll refer to 1,000 pages back in most Bibles. Exodus, you might know, is the second book of our Bibles. It's the story of God leading his people out of slavery in, e in Egypt into a promised land, and in the meantime, traveling about for 40 years in the wilderness. The wilderness. Through a desert. A desolate 
place. Desolate. Does that ring any bells? Desolate was the topography given three times in Mark 6. Verse 31, it's a desolate place. Verse 32, they're in a desolate place. Verse 35, this is a desolate place. This place actually isn't a desert. We know that. We know where they are right now. It's not a desert. This word desert, though, in their language, it has more elasticity than our word desert. It could mean simply out of the way or a desert. Mark doesn't need to refer to the landscape. He rarely, if ever, does that. But here he's emphasizing this is a desert. They're in a desert. They went out to a desert. The people are without food in a desert. Ring any bells? You see, the miraculous provision of bread in Mark 6 is familiar to anyone who knew their Bibles, who knows their Bibles, especially the Old Testament. In the Exodus story, the people are in the wilderness. And how do you feed 600,000 plus in a desert? Moses can't do it. The people can't do it. You can't pack enough. Only God can do it. Only God can do it miraculously. And he did. He provided miracle bread from heaven on a daily basis. They had more than enough and had to trust him for it every day. Don't you see? Jesus in Mark 6 is reenacting that miraculous wilderness provision in the book of Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. It's a new Exodus. He's signaling something. This is a new beginning. It's a new rescue from bondage, not from Pharaoh, but from your own heart and from Satan and sin. This is a new time, a new age, a new time of being let out and being let in. Tuck that away, being let out and being let in. Verse 34, remember that he said, it said that he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. That phrase, sheep without a shepherd, is from Numbers 27. Numbers 27, there Moses spoke to the Lord saying, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint Appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. You see, Jesus didn't have to refer to Numbers 27. Mark didn't have to refer us back to Numbers 27. It wasn't just a coincidence, similar language, like it's a, it's a meme or a saying. No. It's an arrow pointing us back. Jesus wants us here to think about the time of the exodus in the wilderness. He's playing out some of the same old stories in brand new ways. Secondly, a final prophet. A final prophet. Back to Moses again. Moses prophesied in Deuteronomy 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. A prophet was to come after Moses. Many did, but there was a single prophet to come. It was a concept throughout the Old Testament building and building. Even when Jesus does this specific miracle of feeding the 5,000 in John's account, the people conclude, this is the prophet. The prophet. One they will listen to. Not all people, but some will listen to him. 
They didn't listen to Moses so well. They listened a little bit better to Joshua, his immediate successor in Numbers 27. But Moses had to die as good as he was. Joshua too, they listened to him, but he had to die too. We need one who lives forevermore. We need one who will come as a prophet to whom you shall listen, declares the Lord. Also notice back in Mark 6 that Jesus in verse 40 had them sit down in groups, some by hundreds, some by fifties. That just practical for distribution of the food? Maybe. And it might be also reminiscent of Exodus 18. In Exodus 18, Moses was told, place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, of tens. You see, the people in Jesus' time were much more familiar with their Bibles than we are. They just heard certain things. Like, like you hear 9-11 and it rings a bell. A bell goes off when they, they hear progressions like thousands or, or hundreds or fifties. When they hear desert, 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 bread. Or another example, the exchange that happens between Jesus and his disciples in Mark 6 is quite reminiscent of what happens in 2 Kings 4, as I'm sure you were all thinking, right? I'm letting you know, I didn't know this either. I mean, smarter people than me point this stuff out. In 2 Kings 4, with the prophet Elijah, there's an exchange where Elijah says, Give to the men what they may eat. But his servant said, How can I get set this before? How can I set this, rather, the amount they had, before a hundred men? So he repeated, Give it to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he said it before them. And they ate and had some left. Oh, I think Mark knows about 2 Kings 4, don't you? Thirdly is a promised shepherd. Oh, there's this long tradition of a shepherd to come. A shepherd to come. And Jesus looked out and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Moses saw the potential of sheep without a shepherd, and God raised up faithful Joshua. But for many seasons in the Old Testament time, there would be no shepherds or no good shepherds like this. Jeremiah 23. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them. And I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. They shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Don't you see, Jesus comes intentionally laying down breadcrumbs about being not just a shepherd or a good shepherd, but the shepherd, the one to come, and the Lord himself. We could look at Psalm 23 if we had more time. Well, we'll do it anyway. Okay, Psalm 23. 
Did you notice any hints of Psalm 23 in Mark 6? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, David said. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Did you notice in Mark 6? It's a desolate place. And then a desolate place. They're in a desolate place. And he had them sit down on the green grass. What? Where green grass come from? They get teleported? Did, did Jesus put turf underneath everyone right away? I don't know. Mark's emphasizing different things. A desolate place. A desolate place. A desolate place. He's led them into green pastures. And he feeds them. The Lord is their shepherd. And lastly, there's a true feast. A true feast going on when Jesus feeds the 5,000. It doesn't look like a banquet, but it really it is. It's described in banquet-like terms. It's a feast with traditional liturgy. You see that especially when he made them sit down in groups. Literally, the word is dinner parties. He made them sit down in dinner parties and then he gave the benediction, the blessing that the host of the banquet feast would, would then give. It's a feast, a banquet, and it's a feast that's in stark contrast to another banquet that happened in Mark 6. We saw it last week, Herod's birthday party, where only the noblest were invited, and where they had the finest foods and the most salacial dancing. It ended with a prophet's head on a platter. But Jesus cares for, has compassion on, and provides for the lowly, the desperate, the needy. He feeds them miraculously. He's good and kind. What a shepherd he is. Herod is no shepherd. Jesus is. He's the shepherd. He himself is a feast. He didn't just bring one big feast to them and that's it. That's the end of the story. Or 4,000 people. It happened later in Mark. He didn't come to just bring feasts or to feed the hungry. Many are still physically hungry today. But he himself came to be a feast. You notice in verse 41 when he gave that benediction, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. It's remarkably similar to the Last Supper, where we read in chapter 14 of Mark, he took the bread, and after blessing it, broke it, gave it to them, and now said, take, this is my body. He doesn't come to just bring bread, even miracle bread. He comes to be our bread, our satisfaction, our hope, our life, Mark 6, feeding the 5,000, doesn't just look backwards, but also looks forwards to the Lord's Supper, which we'll celebrate this Wednesday. Come, eat with us, especially if you're a Christian. Come and eat of the Lord's meal. And, and remember as you do so that there's a feast that's still to come in God's plan. It's called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19, where with Jesus, we his bride, he the groom, we will celebrate the consummation of that marriage we will eat with him. We will see him face to face. Even back in Isaiah 25, that was told about. A day when the Lord will make a feast for all the peoples. Rich food, well-aged wine. And he will then swallow up death forever. That's what's to come. That's what's to come. Let's wait on him. Keep your eyes on him. Ask yourself, what are you hungry for? What are you trusting in? 
Is Jesus enough? Are you being fed by him? Are you feeding on him? Not just saved, but communing and feeding on this one who gives us words of life, who gives us himself, who's given us his Holy Spirit, who's given us each other, who's given us songs to sing, who's given us his praise in our ears and lips. He's the good shepherd. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we pray for those with us this morning who don't yet know Jesus as a shepherd. We pray they'd keep asking like those in Mark, who is this? What does this mean? Who can do such things? Pray, Lord, they wouldn't just ask questions, though, but they would come to believe like we have, not because, oh, we're so insightful, oh, because we're, we've worked so hard at the answer, but simply because you've revealed yourself to us. And our flesh would not receive it apart from your grace. So we pray for much of your grace here. We pray as your people, Lord, to be fed once again, to be nourished once again, Lord, to taste that you are good in and through Jesus, to drink of your milk and your word like newborn babes and to long for it like newborn babes desire their mother's milk. Lord, help us to praise you as our shepherd. Help us to thank you afresh that you lead us in green pastures. Even if we walk through the shadow of death, we'll fear no evil. You're with us. Your hand, your rod, your staff... You guide us. You protect us. You give us a banquet in the presence of our enemies. Our cup runs over. With your provision and care and goodness to us, our cup runs over. And help us to long for the day when, Lord Jesus, you will return in glory and we will see you. We will be with you. That day when you say one final time, come and dine. Help us now to sing of that day, that glorious day, once again. In Jesus' name, amen.